It's Tuesday, October 25th, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow, and I'll be your moderator today, watching a conversation featuring three of my colleagues we call Hoover's Goodfellows. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. H.R., I'm starting with you because our producer, Scott Immigrant, sent around a rather distressing retweet the other day, linking the Philadelphia Phillies, of all things, to economic misery, pointing out that in years that the Phillies go to the World Series, America ends up in either a depression or a recession. So HR is a native Philadelphian and the many insults thrown that city's way. Uh, is it really fair to blame Philadelphia for the nation's economy? Uh, of course not. But hey, look at the bright side. If we're going to go to a recession anyway, you might as well have the Phillies win the World Series, right? So I, I mean, I, you know, I think we have to, you know, I've been casserole the optimist on the show. That's That's the optimistic side of this. Okay, Neil, John, uh, uh, as we get closer to the election, are there any kind of goofy indexes you guys look at? We Here in America, we go overboard with these things. We look at sports. We look at bake sales. We look at all kinds of crazy ways to predict elections. Is there anything you guys seriously take note of? Well, you hit, hit your finger on the replication crisis in empirical economics <laughs> and how to p-hack results that are eminently publishable if you keep trying in uh, appropriate journals. Uh, no, I don't, I don't believe in astrology. <laughs> in fact, uh, these days, uh, actual surveys and, and polling is, is uh, uh, more and more suspicious. Okay, so the fault lies not in our stars, but in our candidates. So this is the last uh, Goodfellas for October. So for this episode, I thought we might want to look at things through the prism of Red October, which is a phrase going around American politics these days, reflecting Republicans improving fortunes in the upcoming midterm election, which is now two weeks from uh, today's recording. Uh, you look around the country, the generic ballot, the House races, Senate races, Republican candidates are showing an uptick. The website 538.com, which takes polling data and turns out in political prognostic now gives Republicans an 81% chance of winning the House, only 45% in the Senate. So let's begin the show with the premise that Republicans have control of at least half, if not all, of Congress. And let's apply what they do with that power. John Cochran put it very well the other day. It's the question of the dog chasing the car, finally catching the car. What does the dog do? What do Republicans do with power and how does it apply to a few things we like to talk about here on Goodfellows? And Neil and John, why don't we talk about this in regards to what's going on in the UK? You're a Republican member of Congress in 2023 and you're looking at what's happening with the UK economy. How do you apply that to the American economy? Yes, uh, they are the dog that cat caught the car. And what does the Republican Party in the US mean, uh, I think is the great open question. You know, Democrats, when, you're, when you have the administration, you kind of know what they are, what they're going to do. Uh, so is the Republican Party national conservative, whatever that means, a singularly poorly chosen title uh, for its historical references? Um, are they party of big government that helps or comes to pretend to help the working class, whatever that means? Or are we back to, uh, you know, the thing that actually works, uh, free markets, return to constitutional order, um, and, you know, low taxes and so forth? The UK... Um, Went to, just went through this spectacular experiment where this trust tried to revive Reagan-Thatcher economics, which on the economics merits, I think she's exactly right. You have a very slow growing economy. The idea that you need more stimulus is ludicrous because inflation is going 10%. So the only way out of this is to remove all the sand in the gears of the supply side of the economy. Uh, as as right as the economics was, the politics of it was absolutely catastrophic. The politics and the messaging, uh, they sold it as they sold it as Keynesian stimulus. They weren't willing to use the word incentive in their own propaganda. So if you don't believe your own uh, ideas, I don't know what's happening. And then of course sequencing it by starting with tiny little tax cuts that nonetheless are like clickbait to all the standard intelligentsia who says no, 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 no. Uh, and and the lack, um, you know, we had a great communicator in Ray, Reagan and an iron lady in Thatcher, and Liz Trust pr proved to be none of these. Now, what does that mean for the U.S.? Um, you know, is there a chance for, uh, there's no chance in the U.K. now for, and I'll, I'll hear Neil tell me I'm wrong, but I, I hope I'm wrong, for a serious growth-oriented policy to take over, at least out of the conservatives, for a generation. Is there a chance for the U.S. Republicans to turn to a serious growth-oriented policy. I would hope so, but we at least have an abject lesson in how not to do it. Well, my view is that conservatives need to be very careful about emphasizing fiscal policy in the wake of a financial crisis 
uh, a bout of fiscal irresponsibility uh, for its own sake. And then, of course, uh, the current inflationary uh, crisis, which I guess has its origins uh, in the pandemic. It's very difficult when you've really cranked up the debt to GDP ratio to then say, we are the conservatives and we're all about tax cuts. Because, John, you won't deny, I hope, that there's some pretty nasty fiscal arithmetic for indebted governments uh, running uh, deficits in an atmosphere, in a, in a climate of rising interest rates. So anybody who wants to emphasize uh, fiscal policy at this point is essentially committing political suicide, as Liz Trust discovered. Now, my advice uh, to conservatives on both sides of the Atlantic has been for some time, do not prioritize issues where you can only lose, where you're bound to have to uh, cut spending if you aren't prepared to raise taxes. This is how you lose elections. So don't go there. Focus on the things where the left, where the Democrats or the Labour Party are vulnerable. And those are, broadly speaking, cultural issues. Education, where everybody knows the left has gone mad, uh, wants our children to believe three impossible things before recess. Uh, Focus on the whole range of issues that really arose during the pandemic uh, of what might broadly be called social control. Take a leaf out of the pages of uh, Glenn Youngkin and Ron DeSantis and go for those issues. You were derogatory a moment ago, John, about national conservatism. But if national conservatism means anything, it means fighting and winning the culture war. When you know that the majority of ordinary people really aren't woke and therefore it's relatively easy to peel them away from the left by pointing out the lunacies that the people on the left want them to believe, that there are 53 genders, that it's actually anti-racism systematically to discriminate against people on the basis of race, and so on. So the the conservatives in Britain made a very, very basic mistake. They thought that politics was still about taxes in conditions where you simply can't easily cut them. They didn't realize that it's not the 1980s anymore. Uh, is the 2020s. And then the 2020s, politics about culture. And that's how you get voters to turn away from the left. I, I warned British conservatives about this in the summer and they wouldn't listen. And here they are. I, I want to, Neil, I, I want to mostly agree and gently disagree. You, you're exactly right on how to peel voters away from left. But then you, the dog that caught the car, you need to do something about it. And part of that something has to be about economic policy, uh, not just the culture wars. And you have to explain, so tax cuts, our, if you are a supply sider, what matters is tax rates, not taxes. And you have to be able to explain this slowly and patiently. Even in the UK, 45% income tax, 20% VAT, these add on each other. Social insurance taxes, property taxes. You're lucky if you earn an extra pound that you get to spend 30 or 40 cents of it. Uh, pence, sorry. <laughs> and uh, you know those disincentives are the corporate taxes are about keeping companies. You have to be, so the eventual right answer is lower rates and broader base. Now, that doesn't come first, and you're exactly right. Not just can you look out the window and see culture wars uh, uh, that are plainly silly. You can look out the window and see that you can't get building permits. The left is looking out the window and saying, we can't get transmission line permits. The All the ways in which the sand is in the gears of the microeconomy is, is abundantly clear to both. And that actually, that would not just peel off voters, that, that would show competence in government. And that was what I was arguing was the place to start with microeconomic policy. Of course, you have to get the inflation under control. And, and that does require uh, talking about a sound long run fiscal policy, but that too mostly comes from growth. Mm-hmm. HR, I looked at the national security and questions of where House Republicans would go with that. Yes. Uh, where do we start? Um, is climate change an existential threat to national security, as the Secretary of Defense would have you believe? Withdrawal from Afghanistan, should there be hearings on that? The ongoing question of American boots on the ground elsewhere. But let's focus HR on Ukraine. Uh, back in July, 30 House Democrats sent a letter to Nancy Pelosi saying that it's time now to engage directly with Russia to settle this. Uh, just the other day, Kevin McCarthy was asked about Ukraine, and he told reporters that, in his words, and I'll quote here, uh, the American voters do not quote to uh, do not want to, uh, quote, uh, keep writing a blank check to Ukraine. So, H.R., what is a sensible policy on Ukraine in 2023? 
Well, I think a sensible policy is that we do everything we can to help Ukraine win. And that means convince Vladimir Putin he's been defeated. You know, I do think, as we've talked oftentimes here, that, you know, that, that there is no such thing as an off-ramp for Vladimir Putin. It's just a chance for another on-ramp. And so I think the more that we recognize that, and it's quite easy to come to that conclusion if you just look at the historical pattern of Putin's aggression going back to, you know, 2003, you know, at the, at the, uh, at the least, uh, that, that that's the logical conclusion that Putin has to be convinced he's been defeated or else this war will go on and ultimately become more and more costly. What we've seen, I think already, Bill, and this is what we, I think, have to talk to the American people about is that, you know, these conflicts that develop abroad, you know, don't stay there, don't stay confined to that geographic area, right? We've seen, you know, we see the conflict expand, obviously, with the, the humanitarian crisis and the refugee crisis and how that's affected mainly mm-hmm. Europe, but uh, but even more broadly. Uh, and of course, you've seen it with the effect on global energy markets, and especially with Putin's, you know, threat maybe to to, to energy infrastructure, you know, after blowing up the Nord Stream two pipeline. You know, mm-hmm. how about how about food security? Uh, and and so I think it's immensely important for us to recognize that you know these conflicts don't stay confined to where they are, and the outcome of this conflict is is in America's interest. To, it's in America's interest to ensure that that Ukraine wins, and by win, I think I think that means. You know, reestablishing control of, of Ukraine's territory and and giving Putin no other option, right? But to, you know, but to, but to you know, engage into some sort of a ceasefire in which Ukraine can consolidate the regaining of its territory and and reestablish security. So yeah. I want to ask you both both you guys a question. We're going to stay on this topic because we got Ukraine and we also got this national security strategy, which I want to ask about. But on Ukraine, so I read something real interesting last week that said. Um, uh, Putin, it's about domestic politics, which and Russia internally is getting much more fragmented. Putin can afford to lose to the U.S., but he can't afford to lose to Ukraine, which was, I don't know if that was an argument for, it was an argument for Putin might escalate. I don't know if it was an argument for we might escalate or not. And then the big question, are the Republicans, when they catch the car, going to go isolationist and cut off Ukraine? So two questions for you, but I'm curious to know what both of you guys think. Well, I'll go first. Putin can't afford to lose, period. Mm-hmm. As a Russian leader, you launch a, an offensive operation, invade uh, a country such as Ukraine. It uh, doesn't really matter why you lose. If you lose, you're in big trouble historically. Afghanistan? Ask Nicholas II. Afghanistan was one of the reasons the Soviet Union fell apart, John. The total corrosion of the legitimacy of the uh, Soviet Union was not just caused by Chernobyl. It was caused by an utterly futile decade-long attempt uh, to bomb Afghanistan back to the Stone Age, which they pretty much did. Uh, some people confuse our efforts in Afghanistan with the Soviet efforts. This is very ignorant. The Soviets devastated the country. We did a considerable amount to uh, improve its uh, economic uh, and social infrastructure. So that's part one of the answer. Part two of the answer is I think there's a lot of fake news doing the rounds about uh, the domestic politics of Ukraine. About a week ago, there was a headline that Kevin McCarthy was contemplating cutting off funding, or at least reviewing it, if he became a Speaker of the House again. On close inspection, that doesn't seem to be true. Uh, in fact, the Republicans uh, are arguing that we should increase our commitment to Ukraine, particularly with respect to weapons, so that the Ukrainians have a better shot winning this war. Remember, we're giving the Ukrainians enough weapons not to lose, but they're not really getting enough to win right. because they don't have nearly enough armor for their offensive operations uh, to be successful at reasonable cost. And they don't have good defenses against the uh, Iranian drones that the Russians are currently raining down on uh, on Ukrainian infrastructure. So the Republicans are actually arguing rightly that we need to up our commitment to Ukraine on the military side. It's the Democrats who've gone wobbly, although the progressives who started arguing that there needs to be negotiation have backed away very rapidly from that letter. And uh, the sound of staffers being thrown under buses in Washington is almost audible here uh, on the Stanford campus. I think that's what's really going on. And that reminds us of the most important point in American politics today, and that is the bipartisan consensus on foreign policy that no one dare break. We're told over and over again, the country's so polarized, everything is partisan. No, there is a consensus on foreign policy that has emerged 
particularly on the question of China, but I think it also applies to Russia and Ukraine. And it's quite dangerous, actually, to stray from this. Now, here I'm going to throw it to HR. For me, the most striking thing about the administration's new national security uh, strategy document is how like yours it is when you strip away the woke flimflam that's sort of stuck on there to keep the progressives on board. You know, it's going to be an inclusive national security strategy, da, da, da. But you take that out and at core, what does it say? There are two major uh, rivals. We're in competition with them. Number one is China. Number two is Russia. Uh, you know, I I went back and compared the text of your excellent national security strategy document, HR, with this one. And there are surprisingly striking resemblances on the core issues of China and Russia. Do you agree? Yeah, I do agree, Neil. There, it is it is most striking in terms of continuity, uh, especially in the area of great power competition with with China, especially, and and then Russia as as well. And I, you know, I, I think it's just undeniable. I mean, I, I remember you know in in March of 2017 when you know we convened the Principals Committee of the National Security Council, and I read excerpts from the Obama administration's China policy, and just noted that we were about to affect the, the most significant shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, and that's between. You know the, the strategy of of, uh, of cooperation and engagement under the flawed assumption that China, you know, having been welcomed to the international order, uh, would play by the rules, and as it prospered, it would liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of governance. Okay, who believes that anymore? Right, nobody except maybe a few people on Wall Street. And then and then uh, and then and then uh, and we wanted it to be bipartisan from the beginning, Neil. You know, we held roundtable discussions about the national security strategy across across party lines with people on the Hill. You know, this was not it was not meant to be a partisan uh, national security strategy. It was the president's. And uh, of course, I'm sure many Democrats took exception and, uh, and many Republicans as well to the America first language, just in terms of the, you know, the the, the phrase itself. Uh, but, you know, other than that, I, I think it's really a document that will stand the test of time, because what we decided to do is to confront the world as it is and recognize the, the points at which our vital interests were at stake and and to do everything we could from a policy perspective to look for opportunities uh, to, to preserve peace through strength, uh, to, to improve our security broadly, to promote prosperity, and to extend American influence in the world. Uh, and, and we did so in recognition that you know, we, we're, we're far behind in 2017, Neil, John, and Bill. I mean, we, you know, we had vacated critical arenas of competition under these flawed assumptions about the post-Cold War world. And it was, it was well, we were well overdue for a corrective. Now, there is a lot of distracting language in there, I think. You know, hey, climate change is an issue. Okay, I'm not a climate denier. But to put, say that that is the most, the existential threat uh, that, that you're facing, uh, I think it, it is sort of lends itself to the hysteria that actually prevents meaningful solutions to the issues of, of man-made carbon emissions and, and, and reductions of man-made carbon emissions and, and greenhouse gases and, and addressing climate issues. Uh, and then also, you know, some of the language in there that really irked me, you know, was this language about, you know, a scourge of, 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 uh, of problems within the military, you know, when in fact there is no scourge of these problems. Uh, these problems actually appear in terms of, and we're talking about like sexual harassment and assault and, you know, various forms of bigotry. They, they, they happen at, at far lesser rates than they do in most of American society. And what I worry about, you know, is this kind of this wokeness and this sort of agenda to change the culture, the military culture, when in fact our military culture is intolerant of, of, of those kind of transgressions and, and crimes. And so I, I do think that there still is this woke agenda. I mean, it is, it is remarkable that it took so long to get the national security strategy out, but the gender strategy was out, you know, but about a year and a half ago. So I, I do think there is there's a problem with priorities, but I was heartened to see the continuities uh, in in in, uh, in in terms of great power competition and the recognition, you know that that uh, that we're behind the competition with China and the next the next decade will be consequential in terms of our ability to maintain critical competitive advantages that will allow us uh, to give our children and grandchildren the opportunities that we've had. Mm-hmm. Is, is it really flim flam though? I mean, that's I'm I'm really curious. When the national security strategy started, was our our existential threat is climate. I think we'll go on to energy and climate change as a separate issue. But does that really have, does everyone just kind of laugh and say, okay, uh, there's a problem for HR for 
HR thinks every problem can be solved with a tank. I'm not sure that one is, unless maybe it's a battery-powered tank wandering around the hills of Ukraine looking for a charging station. Uh, but um, does it really not matter when so much, you have to strip away so much of the language and say, oh, ha, ha, they don't really mean that, both the inclusion stuff and, and the climate is our existence. Well, it's, it's, it's a distraction, right? It's a distraction at the very least. I mean, I, I think if you read the service secretary's priorities, read the secretary of the Navy's priorities, read the secretary of the Army's priorities, and you think, hey, are our, our services supposed to be able to fight and win wars? Aren't they supposed to be able to demonstrate their ability to do so so they deter conflict? And so I, I think we're in this, this stage now where, where, where we're at risk for what Michael Howard used to describe uh, about, about militaries in, in interwar periods, that, that militaries ha have a tendency to forget what they're for. And, and, of course, if you're not prioritizing readiness, if you put language in the national security strategy about the scourge of all these maladies in the and 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 uh, and activity in in the military when it doesn't you know when it does not scale the problem from a statistical perspective and then you wonder okay well why the hell can't we recruit enough young men and women to serve I mean I think I think that that there is this this strain of self loathing and a woke agenda that cuts against real you know sensible policy and is distracting at the very least mm -hmm. Neil. Well, the word competition appears many more times in the new national security strategy than, well, just about any other word, actually. And so the reason I say it's flimflam is that the nods towards climate change and uh, inclusivity are pretty perfunctory. The guts of the document is what do we do about China? And I think this is the, the, the reason that it's worth our discussing this. In my view, although there are resemblances with uh, HR's radical redrawing of the national security strategy, there's a problem with this document that has nothing to do with what it says on, on climate or inclusivity. The problem is that while it denies that uh, the US is in a Cold War, it explicitly says we don't want a Cold War, it then proceeds to outline a Cold War strategy in which the war in Ukraine is at least partly a proxy war against Russia, and our goal with respect to China is to prevent China's further technological advance. Not long after the publication of the document, the Commerce Department introduced the most sweeping restrictions on Chinese access to high-end semiconductors. You could call these sanctions without a very obvious uh, provocation, unlike the sanctions on Russia. And my concern, which is what I argued in my most recent Bloomberg opinion column, is that we're pursuing a pretty aggressive strategy uh, in Cold War II. And I'm not sure that it's uh, it's as subtle as uh, HR's was. I think there's a considerable downside risk to what we're doing. The open-ended nature of the war in Ukraine is a concern to me. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the end game is in the mind of the administration. I know that there's some risk uh, of escalation, though I think that Putin is mostly playing mind games when he talks about uh, nuclear action. But I'm much more concerned about what we're doing with respect to China, because telling China you cannot progress technologically. We're going to prevent you from having access to the high-end semiconductors. When 92% of those semiconductors are manufactured in, guess where? Taiwan. Looks to me like uh, a recipe for a showdown in a relatively tight time frame over that island. I don't know if HR agrees with me, but you know, HR, we've debated this quite a lot on Goodfellows over the years. What worries me is that the Biden administration seems to be in a rather more reckless mode with respect to China than the Trump administration was. I, I think specifically on the Taiwan question, but more broadly, these are pretty aggressive measures that are being taken here. And of course, it's not coincidental that at the same, pretty much at the same moment, we see China's government moving further in the direction of uh, of a dictatorship uh, with Xi Jinping not only clearly dictator for life, but with uh, his cronies entirely dominant of, on the Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, I think there's cause and effect here. Do you agree, uh, do you agree with me, HR? Hey, I believe there's cause and effect, but I think it's the opposite of the cause and effect that you're pointing to, Neil. I think that these measures were long overdue because, hey, man, they've always been a dictatorship, you know, and we may have hoped 
that uh, you know that that uh, you know that Xi Jinping's heart was going to grow two sizes bigger. You know that he was going to change. He would no longer be a Leninist, uh, you know, dictator. Uh, but that that's not going to happen. And and I think what's what's really I think laudable about what the administration's done is, is with these export controls and especially you know, denying U.S. persons the ability to aid and abet the Chinese Communist Party's agenda. Uh, you know, I think that 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 is laudable and long overdue. And the reason is, hey, we all know investing in China, you know, working with SMIC, working with it, with the, you know, with, with other Chinese companies. It's not like working with any other international company. I mean, you are aiding and abetting the, the strategies that the party has put in place to gain a preponderant position of power, not only across the, the you know the Indo-Pacific region, but 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 globally. And these, are, of course, are the strategies of military civil fusion. All of these companies must act as an arm of the party, as an arm of the People's Liberation Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that we, we should have done this a long time ago in terms of export res- restrictions. I think there needs to be more on outbound investment screening. You know, two major U.S. private equity venture capital firms <laughs> invested in 2014 $700 million in an AI company which now does all battlefield artificial intelligence for the People's Liberation Army. I mean, hey, how about just not underwriting our own demise? And I think that, that it's, it, it's well, uh, you know, past due to take the kind of actions we've seen the administration take. And I think they deserve credit for it. I think, you know, Commerce and BIS that did the right things with these export controls. And I, I know I know this really cuts against John and free trade, man. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it won't be a... I won't be a free trader on this one. I'll be an is it effective one on this one? This is actually a question. My understanding is fighter jets and missiles don't use uh, seven nanometer chips. They use older generation, much more robust, tried and true stuff that China knows how to build like everybody else. The point of these chips was to provide the hardware, uh, which on which then you build advanced computing and AI sorts of stuff. Um, but you don't have to, the, the, the real technology is the software, not the hardware. So at least for the moment, China can buy the idea that we're going to stop China from buying computers onto which it can design AI software seems, I don't think that's that's going to work out. Uh, sanctions are always easy to get around. So it's not clear to me that it's, that stopping them from uh, the, these kind of chip uh, things is going to be that effective as far as military competition with China. It, it's effective as far as what kind of high-end devices can they build rather than buy, but not much effect at all on what kind of software they can write. The, the critical thing is that that the most sophisticated semiconductors China currently has to import, it can't manufacture itself. Uh, and, and we're essentially saying, and nor can you ever, uh, even US persons, that includes green card holders, can't work uh, for Chinese companies in the semiconductor uh, sector. These are quite sweeping measures. And they seem to me to signal that the strategy of the United States is to try to prevent Chinese technological advance, to, to cut them off from the kind of machinery that you need uh, if you want to make high-end semiconductors. And my counter-argument to you, uh, HR, is not about trade, free or otherwise. It's about the risk that a Cold War escalates and becomes a hot war. The Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in 1962 was the closest we came to nuclear war in the whole whole of the first Cold War. And I think it's now generally realized that that was an extraordinarily dangerous moment, much more dangerous than the public realized at the time. Don't you worry, HR, that this administration is approaching Cold War II in somewhat the same gung-ho manner as we saw at that stage of the Cold War? I wouldn't like to rerun the Cuban Missile Crisis a hundred times crisis 100 times in a kind of Monte Carlo simulation, I wouldn't expect it to turn out peacefully 100 out of 100 times. And if we're going to rerun it over Taiwan, which I fear we are, isn't there a significant downside risk that we end up with World War Three? Are you really saying yeah. there's no there's no risk? Just in the same way that imposing sanctions on Japan, cutting Japan off from oil in 1939 to 41, led ultimately to the huge risk that the Japanese took at Pearl Harbor. Is there no scenario in which that doesn't happen in this case? I want to add, add to this one, Dutar, if you will, because um, this is really important. It ties into what we we're doing before. With Ukraine, we're, we're kind of like talking about the immediate actions, but not the long-run strategy. 
What is the long run strategy? Where does the goal? Similarly with China. Here, we're going to punch you in the nose and you can't have semiconductors. Take that, China. Well, uh, you know, let's think, what is the goal fundamentally with China? Does that advance the long run goal? I think that's what we're both questioning here. And the goals are, I think, to prevent China from gaining uh, a differential advantage over us militarily. In fact, what we've been doing for many years is quite the opposite. We've been helping China develop the most advanced weapons capabilities. Just look at the recent report by Strider Technologies, for example, on Los Alamos and how technology that has been really taken from Los Alamos and those who work there under the Thousand Talents programs and other forms of espionage uh, has allowed China to maybe gain an advantage over us in hypersonic missiles, for example. So I think that's goal number one. Uh, don't don't help the Chinese first of all, right? uh, but but uh, but take actions that, that will allow us to maintain our differential competitive advantage technologically from a military perspective. The second I think would be is like, hey, don't help China perfect their technologically enabled Orwellian police state, right? What we've done is we've invested U.S. capital in companies like Hikvision, companies like you know DJI, you know uh, companies like SenseTime, uh, which have really helped China not only perfect its authoritarian police state internally, but also export it to other countries like Cambodia and Zimbabwe and others. And the third thing I think would be is not to not to conduct investments in China, really, that is not like making investments in other companies because of the national security law and so forth, that they have to act as an arm of the government, uh, that then jeopardize the long-term viability of your companies. You know, we've seen this with everything from solar panels to wind turbines to battery manufacturing to, you know, you name it, where China then takes that intellectual property that you give them as part of this deal to gain access to the market oftentimes. Uh, and then and then the, the party, you know, picks a winner, uh, subsidizes that that industry. Huawei is a great example of this in terms of 5G communications. HR, HR, with all drives you out of business. So, yeah. so what I'm saying is we ought to compete effectively but this with is that authoritarian mercantilist model. But this is yeah, not, this is, these are export controls. We're not trying to, to stop investment in china that, no but i know i think i think this is it has to be not just export controls or not just outbound investment screening it has to be uh screening of, of for investments in the united states the CFIUS process so it let's talk about the export controls because i'm with neil on i mean yes, but i mean controls, why would we why would we sell why would we sell hardware for example uh to develop microelectronics to produce microelectronics in china uh that are key components to weapon systems that the PLA may try to use to kill our grandchildren. I mean, does that make sense to anybody? I don't know. But, but, but wait a second, wait a second. HR, you're not addressing the question I asked with all due respect. Are you telling me that there is no risk that China will launch an invasion against Taiwan in the relatively near, near future? Because we are telling it, you are yeah. either going to accept second class status technologically or dot, dot, dot. No, I think, I, I think you have the cause and effect wrong, Neil. I think, I think the cause and effect is wrong here. And I think that the analogy to, you know, to oil in Japan and, 1940, 1941 is, is simplistic. Why? I think I think the highest of a, of a conflict with China existed under the cooperation and engagement strategy. How did that turn out? So under the Obama administration, we said, hey, you know, we really want to cooperate with you. And we wish you would just stop massive cyber attacks against us. We got more cyber attacks. We got we got island building in the South China Sea. You've dumped on that a lot. And that's not the question. I want cause and effect. Neil and I want cause and effect. Okay. We say no, you can't export micro is, well, hold on. You can't mic export microcolectors to China. What does China say? Oh, well, there goes World War III. I guess we lose. No, they don't do that. One, they might take it over from Taiwan. Two, we might just be telling them, oh, you better really develop that industry domestically like crazy. I have in mind Russia, whose Russia has no machine tool industry. Why? Because they started buying it from us in the 1990s. They can't build new weapons. They can't build new nuclear weapons because they don't have any machine tools. If we sold it to, by not selling it to them, the Chinese are either going to grab it in Taiwan or they're going to spend trillions of, of dollars developing their own. They're not going to sit back and say, we just lost World War III. We want to know what's their response to this. Well, well, no, it's not their response. It's what they were doing anyway. This is really what I, I can't. What are they you know, going no, to no, do? No, this, this is, this is you know, the Made in China 2025 strategy and Xi Jinping's explicit objective of creating the dual circulation economy. And, and what, what he meant by that is that he would gain a preponderant advantage in the areas of advanced manufacturing uh, and dominate not only the manufacturing process, but the up, the upstream components and, and minerals and so forth that are that are relevant you know, to, to the most important 
hardware and equipment production, you know, in the world, uh, and then pose us with the dilemma uh, of of really of a China that is really insulated from any kind of economic or financial consequences for its aggressive action, while it creates dependencies on us that are quite analogous to the energy dependencies that Russia was able to create on Europe and, and, and Germany. That was their explicit strategy. They're not doing this, Neil, in reaction to us. This is the whole thing that I mean. I used to deal with you know, in, in, early, in the early days of the Trump administration. Well, you know, Xi Jinping is just being so you know, tough because you know, Donald Trump is so mean. No, it's actually, this is the strategy you know, that, the, that Xi Jinping has set out on from the beginning. And actually, if you look at Roche Doshi's book, The Long Game, this is really what Deng Xiaoping was all about as well, except he was much more subtle about it and in many ways more effective about it. So just to be clear, you don't think there's any risk at all that, that China in the relatively near future launches an invasion of Taiwan? I think, I think actually the danger, it would have been much greater if we had not made the shift from you know, cooperation engagement uh, to, to transparent competition with China. And I think there are two schools of thought here, Neil, and, and uh, this is something I think we ought to track and talk more about you know, in, the, in the coming year, is you know, do you have more to fear from a strong uh, Chinese Communist Party or China under the Chinese Communist Party or a weak one? And I think you make a case either way. But I think you know, the, the conventional wisdom in the Obama years, in fact, President Obama said this explicitly, we have more to fear from a, a weak China than a strong China. I don't believe that if, if, if the China's under Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. And in fact, you know, if China's preoccupied with the, the, the problems they have created for themselves in the real estate sector and the, and, the, and the ripple effect into the financial sector broadly, with the tech crackdowns, with the zero COVID policies, you know, with their desperation uh, to, to try to rekindle economic growth, which they're going to fail at doing, dealing with the capital flight. I think you saw maybe the, the essay in, in the Financial Times recently, wealthy Chinese are doing everything the hell they can to, to activate their escape plans, right? So- do you have more to fear from a China that is that is, that is experiencing this weakness brought upon themselves through their authoritarian mercantilist model, a system that has run its course, that is fundamentally flawed, or should we try to maybe help make China strong again? I mean, I don't understand that. I, I, I think we if there is an assault on Taiwan, it's not that we caused it. Hey, can I, I'm, just, to do I'm it. just like, I feel a bit like, I feel like I'm sailing against a very, very strong tide today. And I just don't know whether it's worth just plugging away. But let me just put up another sail and have another go. This is the administration that utterly failed to avert a war in Eastern Europe that has no end in sight, is causing billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of damage and untold numbers of deaths. This administration failed to deter Putin, in many ways created the uh, conditions uh, in which the war broke out because it didn't sufficiently arm Ukraine. It didn't take NATO membership off the table. It, did, it, it lifted the sanctions of Nord Stream 2. And here we are. And this same administration now ratchets, it up, ratchets up the economic pressure on a China that is clearly moving in an illiberal direction, away from any kind of uh, openness towards the West. Look, we just witnessed a scene from a Cold War, a scene even from the days of Mao Zedong, the utter humiliation of Hu Jintao at yeah. the closing ceremony of the uh, the Party Congress. And as an historian, I tell you, this is not a good look because yeah, but, wars you know, but, begin, but, but, you know, wars don't begin when countries like the People's Republic of China feel confident, they begin when they feel that they're losing their ground, that their position is worsening, that time is not on their side. And that is the situation that Xi Jinping is now in. It's a situation very like Germany 1914. It's a situation like Germany 1939. It's a situation like Japan 1941. And I don't think you're nearly worried enough about what happens no. if, this, if this move is made. Because if you think the war in Ukraine made a mess of the world, Economy. I promise you, a war over Taiwan would be absolutely cataclysmic. And no matter how morally superior you felt, you could be on Goodfellas telling me that it's all Xi Jinping's fault. If the war happens, I believe it will be partly the result of inept American national security, not just no, because of. I would of say, I would say if, if it happens, Neil, it's because of a perception of weakness, not because of a perception of strength. Weakness well, well, that, is provocative. I, That's the case. We don't you're disagree on about that, but That's this is the, the last combination. You know, I, I would, you know, I, I, on Ukraine, it's, I said this before, it's almost like we were greenlighting 
uh, the invasion yes. with with the, the lack of, of activity and actions to you know to to strengthen deterrence there. So hey, why don't we do that across the Indo-Pacific and vis-a-vis China? We should be doing that. We need to do it economically, as I've mentioned, but we do need to do more on the defense uh, on the defense uh, front as well. You know, but but I'll tell you, you know, but you know, when it comes down to it, the person who was to blame for the invasion of Ukraine is not Joe Biden. I think you're like, it seems like John Mearsheim is throwing his voice right now. It's actually Vladimir Putin, you know, who, you know, who, who actually uh, is, to, is to blame for that. Uh, and I do think that, you know, what is provocative to China is weakness. Okay, think about this. 2013, right? Yang Jinshur goes to the ASEAN or APAC, I can't remember which one it was. And he says, hey, you know, we're a big country, you're little countries. Get used to it, is what he's talking to the countries across the Indo-Pacific. You know, they begin to, to build islands in the South China Sea and weaponize them. There's a whole series of aggressive actions that happen in the wake of that, you know, ramming uh, you know, Vietnamese vessels and, and sinking them. We all know what's happened since COVID, bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death in the, in the Himalayan frontier and so forth. You know, ma- massive campaigns of economic coercion uh, against Australia, against, against Estonia, you know, for, for example. Uh, but, you know, did we cause that? I don't I don't think so. And, and so if, you know, you, we've seen the threats to Taiwan, we see we saw the massive kind of pseudo, you know, blockade or telegraphing a blockade uh, associated with Speaker Pelosi's visit. Did we cause all that or does Xi Jinping already decide that he wants to do it? Your perception so, that we won't do anything about it matters. Well, it does. It, you're absolutely right. Deterrence is capability Putin's times will. And the Chinese Communist Party assesses just like Putin assessed. What are their capabilities? What is the will? Okay, and let's then, move on. Let's it, move on. Let's move on, fellas. You know what? Let's move on. The economy, it's not the economy that is influenced by the Phillies performance. It is HR's it's HR's motivation to talk the rest of us into exhaustion on good fellows. <laughs> Hey, I mean, I think you're you're making the Phillies leads. I'm starting to, to feel to, like an Iraq to, uh, to recession of argument. Like, okay, <laughs> okay. I'm a Cubs fan, so you know. <laughs> okay, moving on, folks. Moving on. So, John Cochran, part of what's driving Red October is voters' vast dissatisfaction with the current state of the American economy. You can see Republicans in 2023 with control of half or both uh, bodies of Congress doing all kinds of showy things, dragging uh, Janet Yellen up to the Hill, uh, embarrass her, bringing up Jerome Powell and so forth. But what can the Republicans really do in the way of policy, John, to show that they understand inflation, they get it? Well, there's inflation and there's all the sand in the gears of our own economic policy. Um, You know, inflation does... I'm Mr. Fiscal Theory, the price level. So getting the fiscal house in order, I think, is important inflation. I don't think Republicans have any more taste than, for that than Democrats, because it involves, you know, tackling entitlements. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, the deficit is down, but it's still a trillion bucks a year. Um, and we'll, you know, this will be a moment, though. But I, I don't see much will for doing much on the macro uh, policy issues. The micro policy issues are actually the more interesting ones. Um, you know, Democrats have kind of woken up to the fact that real estate uh, zoning restrictions and real estate restrictions are responsible for housing going up. Republicans have flipped, and now they're the ones who say, no, 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 we must let communities stop all building going up. Hmm, that's kind of an interesting one. Uh, the whole question of, you know, Democrats, uh, climate advocates have figured out we can't put in transmissions lines because the National Environmental Quality Act uh, lets you stop any construction anywhere. And if we're gonna have an existential crisis, the fact that it takes 10 years to get the permits for a transition line, transmission line, that kind of slows down the fact that we're all supposed to be uh, driving electric cars 10 years from now and there's no far of them from. Uh, so, you know, those are the kind of small things. Now, I think you know one place to really look, energy policy looks to me as one that we really, sh- let's talk about microeconomic policies. We are in a a just um, crazy energy policy. The the Democrats in the name of climate have basically, their policy is turn off fossil fuels now before we have something to replace it. You can see how well that's working. Climate's important, but there's there's a sane policy that has benefits and costs and science and, and does things in the order that can, can possibly be done, recognizes that nuclear works and so forth. Will we tilt to that? Uh, that is, I think, a big opportunity for Democrats, but uh, for Republicans. But it's being ensconced in all in lots of ways. So we never pass legislation on this stuff. We, for example, the National Security Directive says, oh, climate change is the most important thing. We got to make that tanks battery powered. 
uh, financial regulation. The SEC is writing all sorts of regulations to force companies basically to shut down the fossil fuel companies, you know, and, and you can see the result. Now, you, we can look out the window and see how catastrophic it is. Uh, will this get ensconced through the regulations, through the administrative state? Will the Republicans be able to do something about it? That seems one that I think, you know, that fixing the schools that uh, Neil, Neil mentioned that. Uh, so where I see the possibility on, on a serious change in economic policy is on this microeconomic, get the sand out of the gears uh, part of it. Uh, they should be fixing taxes and inflation. I just don't think they will. I think this is where there's a missed opportunity a little bit too by by this administration. I mean, in terms of, you know, they talk about integrating defense or you know, national security or foreign policy and domestic policy. Well, how about in the energy space, right? I mean, they've done a lot of things that make no darn sense uh, in, in, ter in terms of, you know, permitting and, and, uh, uh, and infrastructure associated with, you know, our ability to maybe help solve some of the problems associated with uh, with the global energy demand. You know, global, you know, global energy demand is going to go up, you know, 50%, but between now and 2050, the most renewables are going to be able to deliver of that is about 28%. And so, so without making the, the investments in infrastructure, you know, we, we're you know, really denying our, ourselves the ability to be part of that, to be part of that solution. And of course, you know, with the transition to natural gas, from coal and and you know other um, you know other other forms of, of energy that are you know are less uh, or more carbon intensive, I think uh, is a big part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Neil, I have nothing to say on this subject. <laughs> well, let me oh, give you something. This let is me... amazing. We finally found something. We've worn Neil. <laughs> we've worn Neil to enough. Neil has nothing to say on it. Well, Neil, let me give you something you will have an opinion on. Uh, much in the spirit of dragging Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell up to the hill, you can see Republicans dragging Tony Fauci up to the hill to have a pound of his flesh over COVID. But there is a serious conversation to be had about public health policy moving forward. So, as the author of Doom, what is your advice to Republicans on how to proceed on the public health front? Well, we really do need to take stock, don't we? Because uh, we've come through one of the great public health disasters uh, of modern times in the United States. It's not the only public health disaster, though, uh, because if you look at the dent that has been inflicted on life expectancy in this country, actually, the opioid epidemic, which is peculiar to the United States, has done even more damage. Uh, there's something terribly wrong with public health in America. I was looking at the statistics for California perhaps the most successful economy in the world certainly would be up there if it were a nation state, but it's public health atrocious. And it's not as if we don't spend money on healthcare. We spend more than almost any other country relative to GDP. So yeah, we should go back and ask what mistakes were made uh, in 2020 and in 2021. The mistakes were just about as bad in 2021 because we had the vaccines most of that year and still the death toll rose. But I think we need to ask a broader question, and that is, why is life expectancy falling uh, in the United States, the most powerful country uh, in the world with the largest economy? Why has, uh, for year upon year, the death toll uh, from opioid overdoses gone up? Uh, in, in some ways, that's a more worrying question because it's been an American phenomenon and it's dragged on for much longer than COVID. Mm -hmm. John? Uh, so Neil is, is spot on here. We have to remember, let's go back to the political question you asked. What if the Russians take over? Well, uh, <laughs> let me start that again. What if the Republicans take over? Oh, God forbid the Russians take over. Uh, what if the Republicans uh, take over? Well, they take over the House and the Senate and some governorships maybe, but what tools do they have? They can't pass laws because Biden can veto them and they can't pass over vetoes. So what actual tools do they have? Well, the tool of investigation, I think, is the most potent one, and I expect we'll see a lot of that. We will, we should, and we should. The FDA and the CDC, what the heck went wrong? What went wrong with all of our public health that is now in cover your butt mode to defend whatever we did rather than learn from experience and get ready for the next pandemic? What went wrong with Afghanistan? We started talking about where's the inquiry on Afghanistan? What's going on with the schools? Inflation. How could the Federal Reserve have possibly missed 9% inflation? Where is the inquiry commission on that one? Uh, local ones, California, back to energy. California's wildfires in 2020 alone wiped out all of the carbon that all of its carbon policies ever saved. Hmm, 
maybe if we had allowed them to cut down those trees, sequester them in houses and grow new trees, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, you know, you, you can do this kind of inquiry on the local uh, local level at all. What's going on uh, in our, our, I just recently saw the NIH is not sponsoring research that doesn't uh, accord with its uh, its view of what is politically correct research. What's going on in the, in the granting age? So the power to investigate, what's going on in the FBI, Department of Justice, and so forth. These are more political, but nonetheless, as a rule of law person, I'm kind of unhappy to see them turn political. So I do think that is probably the lever of power that they have the greatest uh, ability to, 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 to use, and I'll be interested to see where they use it. Okay, so you just gave me about a half a dozen various things they can investigate, if not more. So prioritize it. Where do you start? All, all at once. You know, you start where you think you can make make some. You know, I'm I'm an economist, so <laughs> I want to investigate the economic ones. But the functioning of government ones, I think, are are very important. How is it administered? So let's investigate the SEC and what they're doing on on imposing climate regulation that is none of their none of their bloody business. Um, so uh, I, I start with all of the above because I'm terrible at prioritizing. That's why I'm an academic. Right. Okay, Neil, one element of a party taking over power in Congress is throwing red meat to the base. So how do the Republicans avoid going after Hunter Biden? How do Republicans avoid going down the same impeachment road as Democrats with Trump and Republicans with Clinton? You know, that's a very political question. Yes. And uh, I'm not sure as a as a professor of history, I'm competent to answer it. Um if if professors of history ran America, uh, the first thing the Republicans would do if they gained control of the House, whether they gained control of the Senate or not, right. would be to say uh, to the American people, the country has a chronic fiscal crisis. John Cochran has written eloquently about the relationship between that fiscal crisis and our inflation problem. It's time for both parties to stop pretending that modern monetary theory is true and that debts and deficits don't matter. They do. The United States will soon spend more on debt interest than it spends on defense when it faces a more formidable opponent than it faced in the first Cold War. Uh, this is something HR and I can agree on. Uh, and we need to stop playing the kind of politics that's characterized uh, our behavior really since the end of the first Cold War. Uh, a politics in which election results are contested, often in frivolous ways, and this happens on both sides. A politics in which impeachment is a substitute for debate. That dates back to the Clinton years. It's time for Americans to get serious. And that requires a bipartisan consensus, not just on the nature of the threat from China and Russia. It needs a bipartisan consensus on fiscal reform. It needs a bipartisan consensus on immigration reform. Uh, it needs a bipartisan consensus uh, on the kind of structural reforms that will make the economy once again the dynamic engine of growth that it needs to be. That's what should be said by the leader of the Republican Party, however the midterms result. And it's what the Democratic leadership should say too. Mm -hmm. Is that going to happen? Oh, probably not. But that's because professors don't rule the world. But let me try. I mean, that was beautiful, Neil. And and uh, other than just uh, repeating what you said, um, the fiscal situation is uh, the huge problem. And when that invasion of Taiwan happens, when uh, all trade in the Pacific is cut off, there's going to be a sovereign fiscal crisis like you've never seen. Um, you know, we're going into this war with 100% debt to GDP ratio. But yes, what the Republicans should do, I'll put them on my HR, tell them to do what they should do. Not, hey, we get to go after Hunter Biden. Not we're going to do unto them like they did unto us, double. Uh, no more. What they should do is we're going to reestablish the norms of constitutional government. Uh, we're not going to show up uh, double or nothing on this bet. We're going to go back to running things the way they're supposed to be run. Even if it's not, it's not going to be bipartisan. We're just going to show by example how you obey proper norms of, of doing things and Hopefully, voters see competence. I think what we all want to see is just mind the store, rule of law, constitutional competence, not lead us off onto some grand new crusade to somewhere else. If they could just display basic competence, uh, then I think with the, you know they would stay in power for a long time, much longer than going after Hunter Biden or whatever else. Mm -hmm. HR, I think focus on outcomes. You know, and, and I, I like John's point about really taking advantage of the opportunity to strengthen confidence in our institutions. When we had Yuval Levin on here, man, he did a great job, I think, uh, in terms of describing, you know, what what ails our, our institutions and Americans' confidence in them. 
and, and, then, and then also what needs to be done. And he actually prioritized Congress. He said Congress is probably the first institution I'll try to get his act together and can maybe set examples for, for others. And, and then, you know, I do, I do think that, you know, focusing on outcomes, right? How do we prepare for the next pandemic or biomedical crisis, right? What have we learned? And then, you know, and we've done this in the past. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of examples. Goldwater Nichols after Vietnam, uh, which directed some of the restructuring of, of the joint staff and joint education, I think was uh, had a profound and positive impact on national defense. Uh, another example might be, remember the election reforms that were undertaken after the 2000 election. Bill, you know a heck of a lot more about this than I do, but it, it was it was very bipartisan. And I think it strengthened confidence in our electoral processes. Um, can you imagine that happening now? It's probably difficult to imagine now. But, but I do think that maybe all of us can demand from our leaders, you know, that they act in all of our interests and they focus on outcomes. I think that would be you know, extremely positive for the country. Can I just riff on HR here? Uh, hey, you take over Congress, got a limited power to do anything else. Why don't you start by fixing Congress? Let's go back to regular order. Let's go back to actually having subcommittee hearings where you hash out what the laws are. You don't show up with 2000 pages five minutes before it's gone and say, vote yes or no. Uh, let's actually pass some individual laws that individually make sense. Uh, fixing, let's to pass laws instead of, oh, the Department of Energy shall figure out what to do to save our existential crisis. Let's actually you know, pass some laws that have some, the Supreme Court is telling Congress, wake up, do your job. Well, wake up, do your job. There is actually, I think, a point in passing laws that you know Biden won't sign. You at least have a blueprint of what's ready to go if only you get a different different signature there. So show, make Congress back what it's supposed to be, I think is the number one thing they could do. John, what about members of Congress trading stock? That's uh, a very bad idea. And you know, if, if people would only show some decency, we wouldn't need a lot of rules. <laughs> Uh, but members of Congress have allowed themselves to trade stock on inside information in, in ways in which if you're running a Burger King and, and you trade stock on what you know about the cow market, you go to jail. Uh, so it's sad that we need to put in rules against that sort of thing. Sounds good. Neil, what about term limits? Term limits for legislators or presidents? Term limits for legislators. Terrible idea. I don't think it's a good idea. Part of the problem that blew the British uh, political and economic situation up uh, in the past uh, weeks was inexperience. Mm -hmm. And I'm a believer in experience. Uh, the, the whole notion that there is some kind of a finite amount of time that somebody's good for uh, dates back in many ways to the Republican Party's fearing a, another Franklin Roosevelt. Now you have to admit, Franklin Roosevelt was a pretty good president. How would things have turned out if he'd only had two terms in office? Do the How about John Quincy Adams, you know, so, as a president and a long-term representative? So I think term limits is a is a, a an idea that makes even less sense than it did in the past, uh, given our longer life expectancy and generally better health. Uh, that's not to say that we want uh, octogenarians in the White House, though. And I think the real focus that that we need to, to bring to bear here is not on some, some naive rule, some simplistic uh, one-size-fits-all rule on how long political careers should be. I think we need to ask questions about whether individuals uh, are still uh, capable of performing uh, the offices of senator, uh, congressman, or for that matter, president. I think there's pretty good reason to believe that Joe Biden is too old to be president. I don't think I'm saying anything here that's uh, really very controversial. Right. Uh, and when 2024 comes around, I hope we have youthful candidates. Uh, that's not about term limits. That is about capacity to perform the most onerous job in the world. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, let me change. So the idea behind term limits is that you don't trust democracy. Right. You think that the voters are too damn dumb to vote somebody out after that person has become corrupt, ensconced, bought off or whatever. So you need to put in a rule to kick people out no matter what. Well, why don't let's fix what you think is wrong with democracy there. Uh, in the end, I'm the economist, competition is always the answer. Uh, the ability of somebody to, uh, to, to see what's wrong with a candidate, explain what's wrong with the candidate and win the next election is the right answer if you think somebody's getting too ensconced. Here, I think, you know, campaign finance laws are actually hurting 
because one way in which you can challenge a newcomer is to get a lot of money and and challenge challenge an incumbent and, and challenge someone who has all the advantages of office. The other problem with term limits is that the minute someone's facing a term limit, they're a lame duck. And I think that's been a problem of, of our presidential policy. The, the right answer was it was always possible to serve more terms, but nobody thought they were better than Washington. And so they chose not to do it. But the possibility of doing it kept them powerful in their second term in office. Now we have one four-year term where something happens and then four years where we're waiting for the next four years. And, and our founders didn't put them in for a reason. They studied history. Uh, I, I know in the history of the Florentine Republic, they had term limits. They, they didn't trust elections, so they had lots. The Medici screwed with the lots anyway. But anyway, they, they, they had it by, by uh, sort of randomly who got to be in office, and then you're only in for a year. And that did not work well at all. Um, so, you know, there's long experience with term limits, with, with distrust in voters. And the answer is that doesn't really work. Uh, democracy works, but it has to have that competition to work. Final question, we'll go quickly around the horn. The dog catches the car. Republicans have control of half, if not all, of Congress. Is this a good thing or a bad thing, John Cochran? Oh, <laughs> well, you get to whine and complain if you stay out of power. Right. Uh, and you're faced with, you caught the car, now you got to do something if you're in power. Let's face it, we're back to divided government for four years. So don't count on, e even if my brand of free market Republican takes over, there's not much you can do as Congress. But right now, a divided government uh, is is probably a good thing to hope for to hold back the excesses of the administration to complain to see every um, executive order to see every illegal usurpation of an administrative agency to just hold in the not the craziness and hold your breaths and and uh, have a chance to show that you have a governing program and philosophy uh, ready to go the next time around. HR. Well, I think it's a great opportunity to, to, to reestablish regular order. I think that would be the one of the major priorities, especially in defense. And I think defense needs a lot of help in terms of not even you know more spending on on uh, on addressing the bow wave of deferred modernization or incapacity issues, but especially on multi-year contracting and the ability to put more predictability into the defense budget that will allow us to do sensible things in connection with the industrial base and 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 refilling some of the stockpiles that we've drawn down uh, with assistance to, to Ukraine. So. I'm hoping that there's a real focus on on defense as maybe a place to get some bipartisan support. There always has been there already, but reestablishing regular order with an emphasis on the defense budget and really getting over the hangover we have uh, associated with uh, with the Budget Control Act and sequestration, which really you know forced the, the department to waste a lot of money, you know, and and to not build in some of the new capabilities that would be quite important uh, for responding to conflict, uh, but but also to deterring China and and, and others. Neil, you get the last word. Well, it's only going to be a good thing if they say what I said earlier in the show. So that's simple enough. Can I take a moment just to uh, very briefly pay my respects and invite you all to pay your respects to my old friend Ash Carter, who uh, suddenly and very unexpectedly died uh, uh, today uh, at the age of just 68. Ash was Defence Secretary 2015 to 17. Uh, he was one of those... Uh, exceptional uh, people who combines a, a distinguished academic career culminating in directing the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School with being a really tireless uh, public servant. Uh, he was one of those people who uh, who really embodied for me Republican virtue. And I don't mean that in the partisan sense. I mean that in, in, in the sense of he served the American Republic uh, and he served it uh, energetically and and creatively bringing his his wisdom to bear as a as a trained physicist to problems of national security and uh yeah uh i'm still reeling a bit probably why i've been subdued on this call uh by the news of of his untimely death right a hoover distinguished visiting fellow also a fellow at the spoli institute at stanford hr your thoughts yeah he'll be missed tremendously you know i i, I really uh thought it was a privilege for me to to, be, to know him over the years i audited his and Bill Perry's class when I was here at Hoover as a National Security Affairs Fellow in mm -hmm. 2002 to 2003. That's when I first met him. Uh, I learned th at that point about the, the instrumental role that he played in helping to dismantle the nuclear arsenals uh, uh, of the of the Soviet Union in the former Soviet republics, including Ukraine. Uh, and then, you know, I found him over the years to be an extraordinarily empathetic person. You know, he's a person, as Neil said, has combined extraordinary competencies as a physicist but then also in, in the areas of policy and strategy. 
but I always found him to be an extraordinary listener and he was very engaging and he also had a great sense of humor and, you know, he's a fellow Philadelphian. And so, so, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm going to miss Ash tremendously and I'm grateful for the opportunity of knowing him and, uh, and to, you know, to, to have benefited from his knowledge and then also from his example over the years. Mm-hmm. John, anything you'd like to add? Uh, I, I did not, I don't travel in such, uh, high circles as you guys. So I did not know Ash, but I'm reminded of George uh, Schultz, who lamented often the difficulty of getting great people to serve our country these days. And uh, it sounds like we lost one and it would be good to try to think how we can get great public servants to serve again. Well said. Our condolences to Ash Carter's family and to all of those who had the pleasure of working with him uh, these many years. And that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. We will be back next week. Uh, You do not want to miss our next episode. It will be Stephen Kotkin talking Russia and China, I imagine. Uh, To make sure you don't miss the show, subscribe to our show. Sign up for us. And by the way, give us a review or two. We like getting all kinds of stars here. You can also sign up for Hoover's Daily Report anytime. John Neal and HR in the news. You'll find out yourself. It comes to your inbox every weekday. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, the insufferable Philadelphian H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. We'll see you next week. Take care. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.